Well, we are back in Colossians this morning, continuing our series called The Supremacy of Jesus in All Things. Uh, two weeks ago, Brother Dave Martin uh, preached on the beginning of chapter three, where we begin a section that is all about personal application. So chapters one and two of this letter uh, is, is really about doctrinal truths. And then chapters three and four, as we continue on in this series, tell us how to live those truths out in our lives. So we're going to be looking at Colossians 3, 5 through 17, if you want to start turning there this morning. And the rest of this letter is about what it means to live under the supremacy of Christ, or acknowledging that, that he is above all things and in all things, meaning us, and how we should be changed because of this truth. So to live under the supremacy of Christ means first to be made a new person in Christ, to be made a new creation by being united to Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, it means to stop living our old ways, our, our old ways of, of thinking, of behaving, those ways which were not in agreement with Christ, those patterns which were not in alignment with the Word of God, those, those lifestyles which in reality are self-destructive. And it means to, to put those off, to lay them aside, and to walk in this newness of life, to live in, in a godly way. So we, we see this idea of to put off and to put on, as Paul says in our passage. To live under the supremacy of Christ means first, to be a new creation because we're united to Christ, and secondly, it means putting off sin and putting on righteousness. So that's what we'll see Paul teach this morning. But before we, we read the passage, uh, I want us to remember this as we look through it, that becoming new putting off sin and putting on righteousness, this only happens because of grace. One of the most important truths in the Bible and what sets Christianity apart from every other religion or belief system in the world is that we are saved by grace rather than our own works. You're not saved because of anything good that you have done, but simply by faith in Jesus Christ and what Christ did for you at the cross. So it's this beautiful truth, it's the heart of the gospel, but it's also a truth that can be misused and abused. And I think the worst abuse of grace is when someone concludes that, well, if we're saved by grace and not by works, it doesn't really matter what I do. We shouldn't worry about sin because it's all forgiven anyways. So some want to celebrate freedom in Christ, but don't ever want to talk about responsibility or obedience that comes as a result. In fact, those two words are bad words to those who overly focus on freedom in Christ that comes through grace. They say, I'm, I'm free in Christ. I have a wonderful relationship with Jesus. And that means I don't have to do anything now except what I want to do because forgiveness has been received. Jesus has forgiven me and I live in that. So don't give me a list of do's and don'ts. Don't tell me what I can and can't do. Don't tell me to be obedient don't tell me to do good things because that's not what Christianity is about. And on the other hand, there's this mistake of moralism or legalism. And it basically mistakes the message of Christianity as, as be good, be nice, do these things. Or a little bit more forcefully, it says, if you will be good, God will bless you. Now, the problem with this message is, of course, it doesn't tell you how to be good. And it mistakes the order of goodness. Because until God works in us, we are incapable of doing good, of doing righteousness, 
of doing justice and of being loving people. The gospel says that the first step in our Christian faith is recognizing that we are incapable of being good on our own. So when people say that uh, the message of Christianity says, be good, and they say nothing of the cross, nothing of the atonement, nothing of grace, and they don't explain that goodness follows the work of Christ in you, they've, they've changed the gospel. That's not a true gospel message. They've forgotten grace. So that's what moralists and legalists do. The first group misunderstands grace because they think freedom is freedom from obedience instead of freedom to obedience. The freedom which Christ brings frees us from condemnation. It frees us from the frustration of attempting to obey when we do not have the resources to do it on our own. But it also frees us to be what God intended us to be in the first place. And what God intended us to be was his image in righteousness and holiness. God intended for us to reflect who he is. And if we're going to reflect who he is, we must reflect his character. And so we must avoid both of those tendencies that can pop up in Christian circles. The tendency to call Christianity is simply be good, be nice, and the other tendency to say, I can do whatever I want because God has forgiven me. So when people say Christianity is not about obedience, it's not about duty, it's not about do's or don'ts, well, there's an issue with that. We'd have to, I'd have to stop my sermon right now <laughs> because every one of Paul's letters he spends the second half of the letter telling you what to do and what not to do. We'd have to take off a lot of Jesus' teachings and hold swaths of the epistles. Now, does that undercut, undercut the doctrine of grace that we're told to do things and not to do others? No, not at all. Because grace, as it says in Romans 5.21, grace reigns through righteousness, and righteousness is the fruit of our freedom from sin. It's the evidence of our freedom. It's the blessing of our freedom. So all that to say, as a preamble before we get into this, as we look at what it means to be a new creation that puts off the old self and puts on the new, this is happening because of the grace of Christ in us, which is demonstrated in us being obedient and becoming more righteous. Okay, got it? Just as a framework before we read the, this list of do nots and do's. Okay, let's read Colossians 3. 5 through 17, unless Dave wants to recite it. I didn't memorize it. I don't know. If, I assume you still got it in there. Uh, that was very impressive. Actually, you know what? I, I don't have the slide for the first. I'm gonna, let me start in verse 1. Let's do uh, 3, 1 through 17, because that part that Dave preached on really just comes right into what we're going. All right, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then here's our passage. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right, so today we just have really two main points that will be broken down. First, put to death sin. That's in that first section, verses 5 through 11. And then second, put on righteousness which is verses 12 through 17. So let's look at the image of putting to death first. Look at verse 5. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Whatever is earthly in you refers to the sinful practices and tendencies that reside in our body. It's not that that matter is evil, that our bodies are evil. That was a, a false teaching that was popular in the day that Paul refuted, and 1 John specifically really goes against that idea that matter is evil, physical is, is evil. Our bodies are not evil, but they are corrupted by sin. The human body is not sinful in and of itself, but it is susceptible to sin. And so God says to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, put to death may sound extreme, and it is. It's supposed to be. But that's because sin is an extreme condition. I think we don't always understand the enormity of how wrong sin actually is. Sin defies God. It defiles the person and it destroys human relationships. So the proper response to sin is not to treat it casually, it's to kill it. You don't, you don't trick it or train it or tame it, you terminate it. Extreme problems require extreme solutions. And once again, this relates back to the new life you received in Christ. You need to connect verse five, put to death, back to verse three, where it says, you have died. You died with Christ, but you still fight the battle against sin in this life. You died, so put sinful things to death. That's the difference between God's role and your role in all this. God's role is is you died with Christ. Your role is now to put these things to death in which we once walked. We read in Romans 8.13, we're going to get a lot of supporting scripture from Paul's other letters today. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Puritan pastor John Owen had a famous saying, be killing sin or it will be killing you. How about putting that one on your mirror every morning while you brush your teeth? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. We are to be merciful with sinners, but ruthless with sin. Sin is under a death sentence, and we are to take part in its execution. So what we get then is we get these two lists 
of five examples of the types of sin to be rid of. The first set of sins in in verse five can be classified as sexual sins. And then the second set could be described as anger sins, specifically interpersonal sins, sins against somebody else. So sexual immorality, the first one there, is a general word that refers to any sexual activity apart from marriage between a man and a woman. So this includes premarital relations, adultery, same-sex relationships, or even things such as pornography or lust. Impurity is just a general word for uncleanness, and it reminds us that any sexual activity outside of marriage is unclean in God's sight, whereas sex within marriage is holy and sanctified and good. Passion is another word for lust, specifically the passion or desire for sex outside of marriage or for someone who is not your spouse. Evil desires, it refers to wrong desires that lead to wrong actions. Now, certainly this could apply to non-sexual sins, but it seems as if Paul is keeping these things all in the same category here. And we get covetousness. Now, covetousness, again, that seems like a really broad category of wanting something that doesn't belong to you. We even see, though, if you look at do not covet back in the Ten Commandments, one of the things not to covet, your neighbor's wife. So there's an aspect of sexual sin associated with covetousness. The, the, uh, the extreme part of covetousness is believing that everything, including other people, exists for only your personal amusement and purposes. So essentially, it turns our desires into idols, which is how Paul then uh, says covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, in the world of the Colossians, when Paul is writing this to the church in Colossae, They came from the pagan world, and the sins of the pagan world and their gods always intertwine sexual sins and idolatry. If they wanted material blessing from a god, they would perform sexual sins to attain it. And so Paul is saying, man, you don't live in that world anymore. So these things can be put to death and done with. In verse 6, Paul says, God's wrath is coming on those who practice these sins. So God's wrath, God's wrath is God's righteous anger towards sin. He's right to be angry towards sin. God is holy. He will not tolerate sin. Now, as those who are are new creations in Christ, we do not need to fear God's wrath. However, we should also not participate in those things which will provoke his wrath. We read something similar in Ephesians 5, 5 through 7. Paul says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, see, same ideas here, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Don't associate ourselves with those sins, the people who partake in that type of sin. The Christians at Colossae used to walk in these ways because that's what the culture around them did. But Paul says in verse 7, you already lived this way before you came to Christ. And when you came to Christ, you came to him asking for forgiveness and deliverance from these things. So in other words, like you should know better. You've been there, done that. You already tried sin and sin didn't deliver. You already said goodbye to your old way of life, so why would you welcome these things back into your life if you've been freed from them? Romans 6, 21 through 23 puts it this way. 
But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed, referring to sin? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin of death is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says next, he gets our our next set of sins here, uh, different ways to put away anger, which destroys community. Now we might read this list and think, okay, well, compared to the first list, these ones aren't as bad. These are kind of lesser sins, right? Or maybe you've heard someone say, or you've thought, thought it yourself when it comes to anger, hey, God just made me with a short fuse. I got a quick temper. First of all, no, he didn't. He did not create you with a short fuse. And even if he did, he didn't. He didn't plan or intend on you to stay that way. Anger and wrath, our first two in this list, these are kind of similar. But anger refers more to a continual attitude, just always being angry. And wrath uh, refers more to sudden outbursts. So you're, you're, that's, that's the quick fuse. The other one is just you're kind of always mad. Malice is the intention to hurt another person. It's the attitude that either wishes or does harm to someone. Malice is glad when another person is hurting and is sorry when they do well. It's the very opposite of what we read in Romans 12, which tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Slander is speech which intends to hurt someone's reputation. I think gossip can also be involved in there, but slander is like, it's not just passing on information, it's like evil intent of what you're saying about someone else. Obscene talk can refer to either curse words or abusive language. And the two are often combined, especially when you're angry, slandering, or full of malice. And then Paul adds lying to the list. Now, not lying and instead telling the truth are linked to being members of one body. As we read in Ephesians 4.25, Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, lying, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. If we're a community that can't be honest and open with each other, as Pastor Mike will say almost every time he preaches, if we're going to be honest, and we are an honest church, that we have to be an honest church. If we can't admit our own failings, our own faults, how can we ever truly turn to Jesus? And if we can't be honest in this, this scenario, this community, this group, where could we ever feel like we could be honest with people? Paul concludes this section on putting to death sin with the idea of of taking off dirty clothes, filthy rags, and putting on something new and clean in the second part of verse 9 through 11. Here, let me me read those again. Uh, He says, uh, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So if we've already changed clothes, if we've already taken off the sins of the flesh that make us behave like the fallen world around us, why would we want to put those back on again? You don't put new clothing. I got a new shirt on today. I'm not wearing a disgusting, ratty old t-shirt. I mean, maybe it could be a newer one, but it's, it's clean. It's been bleached white, all right? It's a nice clean shirt. I don't put new over the dirty old clothes, just like I'm not wearing a filthy old shirt over the new one. I take my old clothes, I get rid of them. I don't need those anymore, and instead, I, I keep the new. 
And I want to make sure as we, we look at verse 10 here, that part of put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator, in our new clothes, in our new self, being renewed in knowledge in the image of our creator, this means that new life doesn't come from just successful daily battles against sin, but instead that the new life is marking the starting point of what this is going to be like. Since we are being renewed, it means we are always needing more renewal. It's not a one-time-and-done thing. This is continual improvement, continual putting to death of sin. So it's like Paul saying, hey, you are new, now be new. This is, this is the new goal for you. And we do this not because of our own efforts, as we talked about at the beginning, but from the gift of renewal that comes through salvation in Jesus. When Paul in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, talks about how we need to work out our salvation that God has worked in our lives, this is the kind of thing he's talking about here, of working this out of what it means to be new, this ongoing sanctification process, meaning becoming more and more like Christ, more and more holy. The renewal comes from being joined to Christ, who is the image of God in whom we have been created. And then that leads us into verse 11. So what Paul's doing in verse 11, he's breaking down all the human barriers that we may put up to show that we are made new and made as one in Jesus, the supreme one in all the universe. So these man-made barriers that divide our world today, they no longer need to be present in our churches. They shouldn't be present in our churches. Greek or Jew refers to racial barriers. We are all created in God's image, and we're not to discriminate against anyone based on race. Circumcised or uncircumcised refers to religious barriers. It doesn't mean that all religions in the world are true and valid, not saying that because we know from John 14, 6 that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. But it means we should not cause divisions in the body of Christ over religious traditions or preferences. Barbarian or Scythian refers to cultural barriers. Barbarian is what the Greeks called anyone who was not a Greek. They were looked down on because they're not us. And the Scythians who came from what would be uh, modern-day Russia and Siberia, they were viewed as the lowest and the worst barbarians of all. And you wanted nothing to do with the way that those people thought and lived. And then finally, Paul says, there is no slave or free. It's referring to social barriers, things like social or economic status, what we often call class divisions today. So Paul says, in Christ, these barriers have all been removed. They have no bearing irrelevance on your new life in Christ, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all means Christ is all that matters. Christ is in all means that Christ is in each of these believers, so how can you discriminate against them or treat them differently? When we come into God's kingdom, we're not focused on if you're white or black, Calvinist or Arminius, Democrat or Republican, rich or poor. These distinctions are shattered when a person becomes joined in Christ's body. The gospel doesn't have an us versus them mentality. Paul concludes that being in Christ, not being from a certain race or class, is the only thing that matters. So, because of this, because of putting to death our sin, being rid of our old selves, and being made one in Christ, we can now put on righteousness in verses 12 through 17. Let's read those verses again. 
Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So now Paul is telling his readers and us to put on the virtues or characteristics of the new creation. But before he lists out good things we should do, like a moralist or legalist would expect, Paul first explains how we can do these things. Paul says you can do it because of who you are. You are chosen. You are holy. You are beloved. Paul is going back to the electing of God's chosen people, as we saw in Exodus last week from Josh Matthews. It's like the Bible's telling one complete story. Uh, uh, God has chosen a people in Israel. He's now chosen you. And because he has chosen you, he's called you into holiness. And he has shown his love for you by choosing you to be holy. It kind of circular logic on itself. I mean, think about the significance of what is being said. Paul applies to this tiny congregation in Colossae the same blessings, blessings which were given by God to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. They were called God's chosen people. And now Paul is saying, you, Colossians, you are the chosen people of God. He's elected you for holiness in life, for serving his church. And because of you being chosen, I want you to put off the old life. And I want you to put on the new life. Dress yourself, clothe yourself, renew yourself in the reality of what it is to be a new creation. And he's saying that to our little congregation in Dexter Middle School in Gresham, Oregon. You have been chosen by God. Because you have been chosen, you are called to be holy. And God demonstrates his love for you and shows you that you can do this because he chose you to be a new creation. It all goes in on itself. Friends, this is insane when you really think about it. The creator of all the universe, as we saw in the beginning of Colossians, that holds the universe together, who is supreme above all things, said, I want you. Be new. Be done with the old. Be what I intended you to be. Don't ever take for granted or downplay the story of how you came to put your faith and trust in Jesus, because each one of those testimonies is literally the craziest, most grace-filled stories in history. And we get to be a part of this. How could we not then want to be full of compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiveness, uh, and love? How could we not be a people full of love for one another because we've been saved from the wretchedness of our sin and are made to be something holy and righteous and chosen and loved by God? Why would we ever want to go back to what we were when we've been freed to be what God shows us to be? But make sure we understand the order of how this works. It's not do this and be chosen, do this and live new. No, it's become new and then do. It's because it is not do this, have a relationship with God, do this to live in fellowship with Christ. 
is because you are in a relationship with Christ, you can now do this. It's so important we get that right. That order has to matter. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers to ever live, once said, I would rather make bricks without straw, another Exodus reference, I would rather make bricks without straw than try to obey the Sermon on the Mount in my own strength. Christianity is not a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps religion. It's a religion which recognizes that in and of ourselves, we are weak. We are incapable of doing what the Lord wants us to do. But by his grace, we will be transformed into what he intended us to be in the first place. So what are we able to do now that Christ is in us and has made us new? We can put on a heart of compassion, meaning care for others. It comes deep from our inner heart, our emotions. We're to put on kindness. This refers to good or kind deeds, very opposite of the attitude of malice described back in verse eight. Humility is putting the needs of others above your own, thinking of others above yourself, contrasting the first list of sins back in verse five, which is all about what do you want? Meekness or gentleness could be another way to, to, to translate it, is being willing to submit to God or others, an idea of service, or is to know how to gently critique someone in a way that helps and doesn't condemn. Patience refers especially to being patient in suffering or when attacked by others. Notice that these are very similar to the fruits of the Spirit we see in Galatians 5, and that all of these qualities characterize Jesus' life and are vital for harmony with one another. And then all of these lead to the action of forbearing and forgiving. Paul recognizes that Christians are not perfect and will sin. He's fully aware of that. He would say that of himself. But when that happens, specifically sins against one another in our congregation, we must be willing to forgive because of what we have already been forgiven of. This is something I talk a lot about with our students. I would say it's probably one of the things I hammer the most. I even taught my, my favorite parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant or unmerciful servant, to both the youth group and West Orient's FCA just in the last couple weeks. Uh, I got to do the same story. In that parable, a servant is forgiven a massive debt of basically $6 billion in today's money by his master. Now, there was no way that this guy could ever pay back $6 billion, as you would guess, and he deserved to be judged for his debt. But the master shows mercy. Students, you guys in student know what mercy is? We talk about it all the time? Come on, do it. Boom. Thanks, Eric, leader of students. <laughs> Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. It's two sides of the same coin, right? We know this, students. Okay, quiz later tonight. The servant in this story turns around, finds another servant who owes him 17 grand, not an ins insignificant amount of money, not a lot compared to $6 billion, and begins choking him, demanding the debt be paid. The second servant begs for mercy, just like the first servant did with the master, but he's ignored and he's thrown in prison. The master hears about this and he's not too pleased with the first servant. He punishes the servant, not because of the first debt, not because of the six billion, that had already been wiped clean, but because he did not forgive little when he had already been forgiven of so much. We are that first servant. Our debt of sin is, my favorite word, ginormous, right? We cannot make it up. 
We cannot pay it back. But God, right? But God. We have so many uh, of our, our pastors that come up here that love that phrase, but God. Beautiful words. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to die a sinner's death that we deserved so that we could be reconciled to him and be made new. We have to, have to, have to forgive others when they hurt us, when they wrong us, no matter how bad the hurt or the wrong is. And we can do this because we have been transformed and understand the magnitude of the sin that we have been saved from as God's chosen and holy ones. So please forgive one another. And the virtue that will allow us to do all that and everything else listed is love. We cannot truly show compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness without love. That, that phrase in verse 14 can literally be read, love which is the bond of perfection. Another way to look at it is love is what is common to all these virtues. It's what unites them. It is what runs through all of them. I think it's no accident that the fruit of the Spirit begins with love. Or in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter concludes with, in verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is what truly makes you like Christ rather than just fulfilling some moral duty. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So now we have two commands. We have to forgive as Jesus forgave us, and we love as Jesus has loved us. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and love. These are all qualities that Christ demonstrated in his own life. And Paul is saying, if you want to truly be dressed as a Christian, make sure you put all of these on. Don't just put off the old sinful practices in your life. Yes, we need to do that, but also clothe yourself with these Christ-like qualities. Off with the old, on with the new. And then Paul closes out this section on putting on the new, putting on righteousness with what, what should be inside us, allowing us to display these virtues. If you notice in these last three verses, each of these last three verses has an aspect of Christ as the subject. Verse 15, the peace of Christ. Verse 16, the word of Christ. And verse 17, the name of Christ. I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that Paul has kept the theme of Jesus being supreme above all things, of being the focus of all things, pretty consistent in this short letter. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself, that is Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. His peace has torn down all of those barriers that we saw in verse 11 so that we can be one body because Christ is all and is in all. So his peace should characterize the relationships within our congregation. And it should lead believers to be thankful as refugees who have escaped the bondage of sin and the wrath of God and has instead brought us into peace with him as his chosen ones. The peace of Christ rules where the word of Christ dwells. Verse 16, the word of Christ refers to the message about Christ, namely the gospel message of how we are saved only through him, but also the word of Christ refers to his teaching in the gospels, everything that Jesus had to say. 
It contains the wealth of God's wisdom, which guides the church's teaching and admonishing. And praise God that we have uh, leaders and pastors that that's what we use when we preach is the words of Christ. We don't need special visions or revelations to enhance the wisdom we've already received in the word of Christ. And again, Thanksgiving comes as a result of this, expressed through song, as we do every morning. And I love that we're going to close out our service every week with more songs to the Lord. But it's not only through communal worship that Christians uh, do things in the name of the Lord and express their thanks to God. The final charge in verse 17 in this section is whatever we do, we do in the name of our Lord Jesus. And all things really means all things. God says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, there's no sacred or secular distinction here. You don't do Christ-centered things at church and then me-centered things at work or home. The command is all-encompassing and covers all of life. It covers all things because, as we've seen in Colossians, Jesus is supreme over all things. Remember Colossians 2.6 from a couple weeks ago. Uh, it says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You receive Christ Jesus as Lord, now continue to walk in him, to live in him as Lord. All you say, all you do, all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We find a similar command in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus? Well, it means that whatever you do, wherever you go, whatever you say, you bear the name of Jesus in all of your actions, in all of your words. I don't know, did any of you growing up ever have a parental or grandparent figure sit you down and say, we're Bradleys, or fill in the blank, whatever your last name is. That's what Bradleys do. This is what Bradleys stand for. My, my dad never did that, by the way, but some of you I know maybe you've had that. There's this expectation to live up to the family name because you represent all of them. Well, we, all of us in this room, who are believers in Christ, we represent Jesus when we say we belong to him and have been made new by him. I saw one pastor summarize, if we're not putting together this idea of walking in obedience and taking the name of Jesus and all that we say and do as this, this is good. Some of you might take offense to this. It depends on if you like meat or not. Calling yourself a Christian while living in constant obedience is like calling yourself a vegan while you're halfway through a steak. I like that. Calling yourself a Christian while living in constant disobedience is like calling yourself a vegan while you're halfway through a steak. It doesn't add up. It doesn't go together, right? If you're a Christian, you've got a new set of clothes. You wear a shirt that says property of, property of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I don't have those made for you in the back of the room today. Uh, and we receive this privilege, this responsibility to carry that property of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that we say and do. So be thankful to God through Jesus and all that you do. There should be no such thing as non-thankful Christians when we understand what has been done for us. You've been given new life in Christ. So off with the old, on with the new. As one who has received new life in Christ, forgive as Christ forgave you. Love as Christ loves you. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you 
for being supreme above all things, for uh, being the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the one who provides the means of salvation so that we can be at peace with the Father. I pray in light of that truth of what you have done, that you have um, defeated sin and death on the cross, that that will make us want to shed our old filthy rags of the sinful life we once had, the world, uh, the worldly affairs that we walked in, and we would uh, thankfully, joyously put on the new clothes, uh, the commands of, of being compassionate and kind and humble and meek and uh, forgiving and loving one another, that we would run to those things and be marked and seen as different. I pray that you'd help all of us in this room uh, in the battles that we have with our flesh, to remember that you have chosen us, you've called us to be holy, and that you love us. And so we are able to take on the temptations of this world because of what you have done for us and because of your power and work in us. Help us to be examples of you in all that we say and do. Thank you so much for your provision of salvation. I pray as we prepare to take communion that our hearts would really uh, just praise and rest in that glorious truth of what has been done for us. I praise things through Jesus' name. Amen.